Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Agent Advantage. My name is Lauren Cooper. Today, I'm joined by Barry Lebo. We are both in the Toronto area. I stick to the north, northern suburbs. Barry tends to stay in the city, if I'm right. Yeah. Um, but Barry's had a substantial amount of history and experience in real estate in many different veins of real estate. So we're going to throw it to Barry. Barry, introduce yourself to the people. Let them know kind of your start in real estate and all your different adventures along the way. I know. I always we won't, we won't go I, too deep, but we, you know, we'll we'll sort of give them the essence of Barry. <laughs> I, I always joke when I I've spoken in Royal LePage offices, um, and I always say I'm so old I knew two of the LePages, which is true. So <laughs> it, it goes back. Um, I started in '68. Um, I was at a Mike Ferry um, seminar or whatever and somebody and the guy said mike ferry's guy puts his, says okay everybody put their hand up who didn't get into real estate to make money one hand went up me <laughs> and he's like what he comes down from the stage walks this is a few years ago and he walks over to me takes the microphone says you didn't get into real estate to make money why did you get into real estate i said because I failed at everything else. It was the only place I could get a job. And that is true. I'm a grade 10. I didn't even finish grade 10. I got thrown out of grade 10. And um, so I hustled. I did all kinds of stuff. I've been hustling since 12. But I got into real estate at 21. I actually had a wife at 21. And wow. at 22, I already had one child. And um, I didn't know any better. And I sold 100 homes my first year in real estate. Hold and on, hold on, hold on. You just sold 100 homes your first year. And this is in the 60s. No training, no training at all. 1968. I had no training. There was, we had, well, wait a minute. That's not true. I, I backtrack. I had a broker manager who was a prick. He was one of the hardest guys I'd ever worked around. I'd had bosses and I'd been a salesman. I'd been on the road at 18 years old. I was a commercial traveler traveling Ontario. And then I was in the Israeli army. I, and that was probably the best training of my life. Um, it, 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 the Israeli army really gave me a, a future hold in real estate. You could wake me up at three in the morning, give me a brush. I can clean any toilet anywhere in the world. <laughs> instant instantly it was a wonderful training but i learned discipline and i learned how to be a boss and um i came back to canada i mean toronto born in fergus ontario so um what happens is i got into the business i really didn't have have anything going for me and i needed money and the first day and remember I, I i come from i come back from israel i was working for a few more a month or so back in the Schmutte business and the selling ladies wear on the road, I was making, I think it was 85 bucks a week or something like that. And um, then I go into real estate the first weekend I was in it and I barely passed the exam, by the way, I had barely passed. I got 75. That was the bottom line. You couldn't get less. I got right. 75 and um, I sold two houses and I got all of $75 a house. This is new houses in Bramley. And I got $150 for the weekend. And so I, was this through, uh, were you working with a builder at I was that working, time? No, I was working for Murray Warsh. Murray was a broker and he built 2,000 homes in his peak year. He was a major builder, but he had a real estate division. And um, big real estate division, we had about 
30, 35 agents back then with us doing resale, mostly new homes, most a lot of some resale, one commercial. And the ironic thing is no one woman only in the whole office. And that was typical, by the way, back in those days. One woman in an office, that's all you ever saw. You didn't see women in real estate. Mm-hmm. And unless they were secretaries. Well, that's definitely so, changed now. Yeah. So we he used to throw us into a room, my manager, take a, a board and write on it. Here's the scenario. It's it's midnight. There's no broke, no manager. You can't get a hold of me. Hold on, I'm getting a phone call, which I will shut off. Sorry about that. No problem. I didn't realize it was still on. I thought I'd shut it off. So, anyways. He would take a scenario. You're in a house. This is what's going on. Here's your negotiation. Here's your, your people got three, 4,000 down. Their mortgage is this, this is that. How do you do it? What do you do with a second mortgage? How do you discount it? We didn't know all this. We didn't know more. You could not sell real estate without knowing mortgages. You couldn't. It was impossible. Mortgage brokers were not the type of people they are today. It was a different breed. And okay. it wasn't that they didn't do it. You didn't work hand in hand with a mortgage broker. You found you had a mortgage broker who bought the mortgages your clients took back and they bought discounted paper. So I'd phone up a mortgage broker. I didn't have to. My father was a mortgage broker, but I would phone a mortgage broker and I would say, I've got a $10,000 second at 12%. What will you pay for it? And they go, $10,000? We'll give you 8,500. And that's what you did. So you would, so what you would have to do is this went on forever. This went through the 60s, the 70s, into the 80s. We would, we would, we we used to be taught it's not how much you, you get for them on the price of the house, it's how much you net out of the house. And that was the thing. Lauren, thank you for inviting me into your home, blah, blah, blah. We do the whole pitch. And then I'd say, so, Lauren, how much money do you need to walk away from this house? What's your what's your goal? Well, Barry, we'd like to have $30,000 or whatever it is. Okay, then we can mortgage manipulate to figure out how to get a take back and what to do and how to. And it wasn't me. This was the typical way real estate was done. Wow. And we we manipulated mortgages. And it was for the benefit. When I say manipulate, I'm talking about the mathematics. It was always to try to get the client the highest dollar. Right. Because it was nothing better than saying, you'd say to me, I want 30000 to walk. And I'd say, Lauren, I'm going to phone you back the next day and say, Lauren, you won't believe this. I got you 31000 So we'd always be, we'd phone for, for, my dad was a commercial mortgage broker, not a residential. So I'd phone around. I know the the guys were buying and I'd say, we'd phone three or four mortgage brokers or like a bid and we'd find the cheapest one, sell the mortgage. So we weren't just selling real estate. We were selling the mortgages too. Oh yeah. And that was a big part of how we did our business. But no, I did about 40 brand new houses. And then what happened? I got a resale. The first weekend I was there, a guy wants to trade his house in, do a conditional offer. I'd never seen a resale. So ironically, it was only a block from where my father was born at Queen of Manning downtown. So I go down to this house and it wasn't hard to price it. It was pretty basic. And I got it and I saw the commission I made on that. It was like a thousand dollars or something, a thousand and something. I've got it on my wall here. And um, I only made $150 for a new house. And I'm getting a thousand after resale. I went, wait a minute, this isn't right. And all of a sudden a light went on. And what I did was I did two things. 
that I started going out to different subdivisions and saying to the lazy agents who were sitting on the subdivisions and especially the builders, I'd say, you take conditional offers. Yeah. How do you know that the agent who's got the listing is a good agent could sell the house? Well, we take a chance. Oh, really? I'll give you a guarantee. Next, how do you know they're pricing the house right? Why can't the people ask whatever they want? And then you're not you're gonna you're gonna tie up a house conditionally for an absurd price. You lost control. Here's the deal: tell them I have to come and give them a valuation, and they have to sign with me if they're gonna go ahead with you, and that's the way it's gonna be. I started to make loads of money. I had uh, I remember I did a three-way. Um, I had a conditional on a conditional on a conditional. I, I, and remember, this is 1968, 69. I did on one deal, and those days I made about 11, 12,000 in one little ch deal chain, which doesn't seem like much today, but a bank manager in those days was making $8,000 a year. I made 10,500 something on one deal. Wow. And I learned so much. Um, one of the properties backed onto a train track and I thought, oh, am I in trouble? And a guy comes along retired from CPR and says, I, I want to watch trains. So I, I lesson, takeaway, learned. Never bring your own biases or prejudice to the table right. because there's somebody else. It's like, I detest the color green if it's not on grass. You'll, I can't stand a green wall. In the old days, green broadlum. It, it just can't stand the stuff. It's just the color I hate. But that's my feeling. Somebody said green's my favorite color. And I go, okay. Right, exactly. Our, our prejudice should never be, our bias should never be part of the selling equation. So I did that. Then I did so well in real estate. I was doing so well that I got recruited by my father's partner, of all things, to come into the mortgage business, but not just because of the mortgage business. That wasn't it. We they the gent, mortgage business was slow in those periods. So what they want to do is buy houses, rent them. We did fluff ups. My own, my old friend Richard Silver always says I was, I was a white painter in those days. We did fluff ups, <laughs> but the thing is, we generated mortgages. We got had to get an interim first mortgage to buy the property. Then we had to get. Um, when we sold it, we took back a first and a, we arranged the first, uh, which we got a fee for from a lender. And we took back a second, which we discounted. So we were doing it to generate mortgages. It was a product to generate mortgages. They needed me because they wanted to buy all these houses. So we had a company called WFE Developments, which was pretty famous in our day. We, were, um, we had beautiful offices. And it, WFE was we blank everybody that was w really <laughs> that was what the company had. wow and it was famous and my partners had under license plates wfe wfe one i didn't do it anyways um we bought i guess wfe days we bought between 250 and 300 houses wow and um i um i made a lot of money i was living the big time I kept my real estate license, by the way, as a side, but I had my mortgage brokers and I learned the mortgage business. Boy, did I learn the mortgage business. So then um, I had a big fight with one of the partners who went on to become extraordinarily famous and ended up in jail years later. It's a long story. And um, I split with him and I went on my own. And um, I was a mortgage broker, real estate broker and buying houses. 
eventually I bought about 600 houses. We also, I, I built um, subdivisions. I was partners. I didn't build them. I was not, I was only on the site of one that I was in control of up in Malton. We um, had a partner who robbed us and really? we threw him off the job and I took over. I was 20 something and I took over finishing up these 50 townhouses. But, Wait, um, let me ask you a question. So you said you bought houses as an investor, you bought houses? I, yeah, I bought, them, I, bought them, I bought them and resold them. Yeah. Gotcha. So not I, to hold as a landlord, but to, to sell. No, them. I couldn't. That would, now there's the mistake. We made 2000% returns on our money wow. and lost a fortune. Because anybody who bought from us and kept the house made a lot more money than we ever made. You can understand, I was buying houses. I was getting 100% financing every time I bought a house. Wow. I would go to, you know, you know Bob Aaron, the lawyer. Yep. So Bob's father financed me for all my first. And I had a, I was, another guy gave me the 15%. I bought hundreds of homes with a $10,000 line of credit at the bank because I need money. I just, I didn't need money um, because it just wasn't necessary, but we were buying, we were, we did um, all kinds of stuff, but I'm doing a series soon. As soon as the weather breaks, and there's no snow. I'm going to start a brand new series on what I've done to, as an innovator in real estate. Um, I was instrumental in creating Chinatown at Queen uh, at Dundas and Spadina. Really? Very instrument. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was partner with Steve Wong, um, Louis Yip, um, Freddie Can, lawyers, other, and my dad doing the financing. And we started to develop some of the, the first modern buildings down there with a guy by the name of Domingo Penaloza, who's Chinese, but has a, um, a Spanish last name because of living in the Philippines. And we started, we, we were bought, I, because the Jews were selling the and 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 the Chinese were buying. I was the liaison, so I was the Jewish boy. <laughs> Dad was the financier, and then I had the Chinese partners. It was a phenomenal time, and we helped create what you see today as Chinatown. I was there. I spent a lot of time there when I was growing up, 15, 16. I would sneak into, you know, Grossman's Tavern and yeah. the Silver Dollar, obviously being coming from a musical background. That was like the highlight of my life was being 16 years old, sneaking in and seeing all my heroes sort of play that that area. Yeah, it was good times. I mean, I, I could tell you stories about clubs that you didn't even know existed because you had to lock sure. doors and go through into a bathroom and through a back door in a men's stall to get into the other room and the other bath. Don't ask. Uh, like good fellas. Gambling <laughs> joints, everything. But um, I was a rounder. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was out. I was a nightlife guy, you know, always was, always will be. But leaving it alone, um, then by accident, a guy came to us and um, he said, we got a problem. Um, the Indian Pakistani communities, not, there was no TV for them at all. There was nothing on television. There was no ethnic television. And he says, there's this old movie theater on Girard street. And, um, what is it's full of tires. It's a guy's using it to store tires. It's filled to the room. It's like a hoarder's tire place. And we want to buy it and turn it into an Indian, um, and Pakistani movie house three, four nights a week, Indian movies, two, three nights a week, Pakistani movies. And nobody wants to finance it because they can't see the vision. My dad, in a minute, we got investors, boom, we put the money up. The NAS started and there was, that was the, nothing was in the Indian village that we know today, Gerard. Then a woman 
got smart and said, oh, wait a minute, these people are lining up to come to the movies. I'm going to open a sweet shop. Then another woman says, oh, they're all in line. I'm going to open a sari shop. And then one, another guy says, I'm going to open up a restaurant. And the street exploded. And we were there to lend them money, but our mistake was not buying the real estate. That was a mistake. And the same thing, um, I was involved as a realtor. I put together the very first, the very first shopping plaza in Agent Court for Chinese. Really? You know, I could not get an investor in Toronto to put up any money. I went all over the Jewish and Chinese communities, Italian communities, developers, couldn't get it. I flew to Houston, Texas, and had a, from a fellow by the name of Wong, he owned a bank in Texas. In a small town in Texas, Texas had no. How did um, you come across this guy in Houston, Texas? This isn't the day of the internet where you could just sort of hop on and search somebody. I had Chinese friends. One guy told me, "Yes, I was always tight with the Chinese community. I, I just love these guys. It's the Hong Kong guys. They were just they were so cool, you know. These are these rich boys came over here because Daddy says go make money in Canada. Guys are wearing custom suits, driving brand new Porsches. I mean, and they pick up the tech. These guys, it was fun nights with these guys. I love these guys. We had a lot of fun, and um, they were good. They were really good. We were good friends. So one day, a guy says, you know, I got a cousin." or brother-in-law, I can't remember now, in Houston, I actually just got on a plane and went down and saw him. He put up all the money for the plaza in Toronto. Amazing. We did the very first plaza, um, and I had a, a fight with and the developers. I sold. I finally got the money together. Then I had to try to find a developer. We assembled the land. It took me a year to assemble the old coal yards and everything. So we People, did all that. It's difficult to, when you're dealing with... Um people that don't have vision and it's difficult to, to find people that do, especially money people. There's a four, I'm, I'm obsessed right now with laneway houses. I actually have sat down with a few people I've talked to and said, let's stop everything we're doing. Let's go build laneway houses. Let's get a master plan. Let's bring in our architects, get a, a couple of vision. Let's do package deals to build laneway houses. I think there's a fortune to be made in it. Absolutely. I know someone who's doing pretty much that, but custom sort of one-off. No, I would do a formula. Yeah, yeah that makes if you've sense. Got, if you've got 20-foot frontage, 15-foot, 15 is a little hard. Um, the other thing is there's nobody, I don't think anybody's putting a, a basement under them because you can you put legally putting a basement under a garage. That would even contribute even more. Absolutely. But, um, it's expensive. That gets Now you're into money. But um, I've sold a property recently and they bought it. It was a piece of crap in Parkdale, like really crap. And I couldn't understand why they paid so much. And then the, the guy who bought it was an architect. He says, laneway house. You got a wide laneway. I like it. And it's uh, I, I, and there's already a garage there. So you can tell the size of the depth of the lot. They're right. going to tear the garage down, but it's the same dimensions on the footprint. And then you could cantilever a little bit and go a little bit out and over. You can, you can play. I'd, I'd go a little further, even though these aren't big suites. Um, I still put a fireplace in. No matter what, I'd put a fireplace in. <laughs> it could be just gas, but I'd still put right. it in. You know? It's There's nice no question. I don't think I'm going to put a wood fireplace for a tenant. Um, no, 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 no. But a, uh, but a gas fireplace, man, your, your rent just went right up again. I did the cash flow at six, seven percent. These things make. I just wrote an article on it today. Just sent it, not an article. I just put it on my page about how to value these things. 
So for people that are watching this that aren't in, you know, major cities right now, there's definitely a housing shortage pretty much everywhere in North America, but especially yeah. in, in Toronto. And uh, laneway housing was something that came up fairly recently in the last couple of years. The granny suites and all this. I've been obsessed with granny suites forever because granny suites, which started in the United States, I mean, the idea is basically you pour your pad in your backyard, all your serve, the pipes are up, the wires are up. The guy comes with a crane and drops the prefab perfectly on the slab and granny moves in. Now you think about the social implications of it. Forget about business for a minute. Think about socially. The government doesn't have to look after granny. Right. The family's 15, 20 feet away from granny. Granny can be looked after by the family. It takes all the social obligations off society. The next thing is though, where the cities don't like it, is granny passes away or granny gets sick and has to go into a, a, a care facility. And then the guy just rents it out to some students or somebody that's, you know, right. and then it's not the same. So that's why Toronto and other cities were fighting it because they didn't want this. But basically I think it's logical. My way would be if granny passes away, you've got 12 months to remove the property, the, the building with a okay. crane again and everything. Right. You know, there could be exceptions or there could be an exception if you rent again to someone over the age of 65. Right. It's, it's logical. There's a huge business here. There's, there's so much business in this business. But you see, the people, most agents, what they do is they, sh they slog it out. I used to sit there. I used to go down to the Robarts Library in Toronto, which is one of the great research libraries. And I would sit there and pour over. Um, aerial maps. That's what I used to do. I that would be every week I would be pouring over aerial maps. And all of a sudden I'd look and I'd go, why is there like a square behind all these buildings? What's there? And of course, most of the time, what it was was an old parking lot or something. Right. Somebody had tried, they had a laneway and then they went back. There was a huge, I did three townhouse projects because of that. I put it together. Now today, that, Toronto's so poured over. A lot of what I did, you can't do anymore. Right. But right now, I mean, I'm looking at uh, assembly again, like, you know, getting people together and saying, you know, so you want to sell your house, it's worth a million too. But I can get you probably $2 million. Why? We're going to put all your neighbors together and sell as a block to a developer. It's business theory. The agents who sit back and wait for business to come to them, you've got to go get your business. Every time I make big money... You, I'm, I made my business. Right. And a lot of people, they, they see this career and it's a great opportunity because you get insight and knowledge and, and really get to meet some key players. But a lot of people see this as a career or a job where you're just going in day after day, doing the same old thing, punching the clock. Or some people see this as opportunity or you building do. a business. You do. The creators make the most money. You look at who makes the most money in real estate commercially and the people who put together the land deals and everything. That's where the biggest money is. I've mm -hmm. done, I've done, I sold the Crailer uh, factory lands in Stratford, Ontario. That was a good deal for me. Um, and some other stuff. I sold an entire block in downtown Toronto, right on Young Street. Entire block. And um, it's a story unto itself. And I got screwed on. My developer got screwed. They rescinded the building permits after everything was in hand. 
after he wow. closed the deal. And um, years later, I, I um, registered my commission on title, which is not legal. Um, but I did it anyways, because the worst they could have said to me is slap it in my hands, get your get it off there. Right. It's called slander of title. You can't do that today. Um, and I put it on title. And about seven years later, they went to close a deal and they resold it. And they found I had a lien against the property. And they said, this is illegal lien. you got to get rid of it. I said, really? When's your closing? He says, in two days. I go, pay me out. I'm not lifting a thing. I'm not closing. You can do what you want. Pay me out. They had to pay me out. It was, wow. cheaper, than, it was cheaper than blocking the deal. Of course. You can't do that. You can't do that. It was a fluke. It was once, you know, it's <laughs> called, you can get in trouble for doing what I did. But sure. I did it. I was angry. <laughs> All right, so you're, you're now, where, where are we at? Like, let's talk 70s, 80s, moving into 90s. 70s, the 1974, on April the 9th, 1974, the Ontario government, the conservative government, brought in a land speculation tax that no one knew about. I got caught with about 30 houses. At 26, I never had a work a day in my life. I was that rich. At 27, I was in a whole $1 million. Now, remember, those are $1974 not today's dollars. Right. The real estate market collapsed. Mortgage rates went from 8% to 12% overnight. The market collapsed. There was no market for the, almost all of 74. And that's not true. Hold on. There was no increase in value. There was still a market right. because people, let me put this to you, Lord. You look at any real estate board in anywhere in North America and look at the worst day in real estate in the crashes and everything. And somebody bought a house. The desire to own a house is greater than the reality. They, they want houses, especially ethnic um, uh, new immigrants. They want a house. And, and you know what? It's not just a matter of, you know, the market. It's a matter of lifestyle as well. And, and if they can make it happen, they want to make it happen, right? They, they'll, 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 go over, they'll do whatever they have to to make deals, to buy a house. And the worst times. So we, I got caught and it took me a few years to bounce back. I was a million plus in the hole. This is a true story. In 18 months, I paid off everybody. From what? 18 months, I made a million. I made it. Nope. I went back to the mortgage business. I opened up. I got lucky. I found the right guy working with me down in Niagara Peninsula. We were doing 40, 50 mortgages a month out of Niagara Peninsula alone. Plus, I had my Orangeville. I used, what I used to do is I used to look where the lenders were. In, remember, it was mostly trust companies were lending. Right. I used to look where the trust companies were. And a lot of the trust companies would lend all their money in January, February, March, do nothing after that, and then start lending money again in the fall. So there was months with no, they weren't lending. Oh, I'm sorry, we're, we're not lending right now. This was what, what was this? Why? Well, they, they had a certain budget of so many millions of dollars. Gotcha. And they, they allocated. Out, they hit their budget. They hit their numbers. I used to open up an office everywhere they were like that. And we were the only guys. And we were getting, I was getting 10% brokerage fees. That was an average fee, it was 10%. Wow. You borrowed 100,000, you paid me 10 grand. And money was pouring in. It was it was like shooting, um, you know, fish in a barrel, as they say. Um, it's a time that's gone. It'll never happen again. And I saw the writing on the wall. See, under what happened under the Great Depression, the banks in the 1930s were forbidden to have more than six percent of their assets in mortgages. That did not get rescinded until sometime in the late 60s or 70s. 
that was on the books right through from the depression right through the banks were not allowed to be heavy in the mortgage business then one day i saw a sign in a bank window we have mortgage money and i realized the banks are going to get into this and i said i want to bail on this i said we're going to get killed we're going to be out of the business is going to shift it's going to be the kind of money we're making i mean i was a millionaire from it yeah well you know and now these mortgage guys today you think they're making that kind of money they're not mortgage agents today they're just they're 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 freelance underwriters for lending institutions that's what they are my father's was if you see a high-rise building from the 60s the 70s those apartment buildings were built all over ontario the odds are my father's the guy who put up the money to build that building you see, you used to go get the bank would give you what they call a takeout mortgage. You build a building, get it to a certain, and we will give you a mortgage, but you have to build a building. So then they take you got a commitment from TD Bank. You can then go to a, an interim lender and borrow the money to build the building. So then that's what dad did. Dad had investors that would put up the money for the interim financing. Right. And I would go out a lot. A lot of times I'd be in Belleville or whatever, and I'd have to go there and write up a report of how much stages the buildings were at and all this stuff. So I learned construction well. But um, then what happened? Then everything was going good. And um, then the markets, um, I, real estate's good. I've got Lebo Realty. I joined Century 21 as a broker franchise owner. Big mistake. I was, <laughs> I was a commercial guy trying to build a residential division and um i ended up with lebo's home for toronto's worst realtors i had people would come in want to read newspapers all day like i learned that one thing i wasn't in real estate a manager being a i couldn't understand how do you motivate unmotivated people yeah these people were sucking me dry i had these gorgeous i know we built an entire office building my partners in construction that we built a building in 345 wilson i had the whole downstairs floor and it was grandiose gorgeous furniture custom built in in the in in, in quebec had it brought in everybody had their phones in there they, everything was gorgeous except for one thing me and my first cousin were the only two workers in the whole place if you added up everything the other people did they never came close in six months to what we did in one month. Now, was Except it always was it always one hundred percent commission, or did they have some sort of uh... oh sixty percent? No, no, no. I don't. I don't mean the split. I mean, did they have some sort of base salary at that time, or was it was always one hundred percent? No, everything was like completely. like yeah, yeah. Gotcha. There was a company that gave salaries. <clears throat> they blew their brains out, but um, it was terrible. I, yeah. I would sit there and go. I try. I drive have contests. Nobody would fight it. I would turn around and try to hit their egos. I would hit their pocketbooks. And I'm like, why are you in real estate? And then I made the worst mistake ever. I did have a few top agents with me at the beginning. I spent so much time trying to motivate unmotivated people. I lost my best people because I wasn't spending time with them. Right. You can't motivate unmotivated people. I, I didn't know that. I didn't understand why were you in a commission job if you're not here for the money? Yeah, or both. And it's screwed up. So let me ask you, because being being in the business for the length of time that you have up to that point, what year was this roughly? I was one of the first Century 21 brokers in Ontario, 79, I guess. Okay, so end of the 70s. At that time, you said you you were doing good business. 
your cousin and a couple of key people. What is it that they were doing at the time that was working? And has that changed from then to now? First of all, my best guys were, one of my best guys spoke three, four languages fluently. So that helped. He was Italian, yeah. Portuguese, and I can't remember the third language now. And we're still friends. Um, he's still a top agent, by the way. Um, we were creating stuff. We were putting assemblies together. And I, we were doing a lot of small apartment buildings, 20, 30 sweeters and stuff like that, going after the individual um, owners. Right. That was sometimes we turn around and say, look, you got 20, you're doing well. You got 27 suites, um, odd numbers. I was, and I'd say, why don't you get a 60 or hundred suite apartment building? We'll sell this one and get you into another one. So we did all, and I walk into a guy with a hundred and go, you know what, Lauren, Hey, I got a, I know. Can I, 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 I've been using this my entire 54 years in real estate. Lauren, can I insult you with an offer? I like it. Can I insult you with an offer? What do you got to lose? Let me see my offer. And you know what? Boom, we just did deals. I still use that to this day. Can I insult you with an offer? I'm going, I'm doing something right now where I'm going after um, a project. Um, that's the problem with commercial. I Last year, in 2021, I lost four months because a commercial deal I was working on didn't happen. But I spent four months on it. So my, right. my that, that that's a tough one. That, that's How much time I, do you typically spend uh, in commercial versus residential? A lot more. There's no question. Like, I hate to say it, residential is so easy. Selling, they close in 60 days, goodbye. There's hardly any involvement in a commercial right. deal. Oh, my God. There's engineers. There's auditors. There's zoning people. There's lawyer after lawyer. Environmental don't you know i lost i did 10 deals that's what pushed me over the edge nine years ago to go join remax close my brokerage i did 10 commercial deals over two and a half years where the smallest commission was a hundred thousand dollars yeah every deal was like great deals some of them were going to pay me three four hundred thousand dollars one closed one and for that i had to sue for my commission wow that was the day i said that's it i'm packing it in and I went, I went to join Remax um, Ultimate because I, I, the first day I was there, the first week I was there, I did a deal. And um, I hadn't done residential in years, and, um, which is really interesting. This is interesting. There's a lot of people go to these trainers today, the Buffinis the, and, and the Fairies and all right. these guys. I'm a Jerry Bresser fanatic. Jerry's one of the originals. And yesterday, Jerry wrote the greatest book in real estate ever written, and that's List More, Sell More. And he just updated it. It's a fabulous book. And I live like Jerry Bresser. So here I am. I haven't been selling residential in years. A guy, the first week I'm back selling residential, a guy says to me, can you cover for me? I'm going on holiday. I said, sure. So I, I go to this house, and I won't go through it all, but there was a point where it was total frustration. I had a guy that wouldn't budge. And I decided, what am I going to do? I got to make this deal. There's a great deal on the table because I had done a CMA. He was getting a lot more money than it was worth. And I pulled, went down deep, and I just opened my mouth, and a Jerry Bresser script came out from 35 years earlier. And the guy, and, and, Jerry, and Jerry Bresser taught me, you put the pen on the offer in front of him, and you, and after you shut and then shut up and say nothing, the guy sat there, sat there, listened to what I had to say, picks up the pen and says, where do I sign? 
I got on the phone. I phone. I got a hold of Jerry in Detroit, and I said, I hadn't spoken to Jerry in 25 years. We did a Skype, not there was no Zoom, and um, we've been friends ever since. As a matter of fact, we stayed in touch. I spoke to him yesterday. And training and coaching is so important. It's I am the sum of everything. I'm a sponge. I've learned. I've learned. I have very little original of anything. <laughs> nothing original. There's nothing original about me. I'm just a guy that's absorbed from so many other people. It's right. just that simple. So you uh, went to Remax. When was it? About nine. Nine years, years ago. Okay. Yeah, and it's been probably one of the most. I, I'm coasting. I mean, I'm not out there like look at lauren um i was so desperate at one in the 70s when i had so many houses and everything i used to go put notices up in bakeries factories that work night shift and police stations are you working the midnight shift you up to midnight shift you can't look for a house i will take you from midnight till six in the morning call me wow and i used to i had a list of vacant houses and some of them had no power i used to have lanterns and I would take cops out at two and three in the morning. How do you think I would do a hundred? I did that my first year too. And I did it back in 74 is when I was desperate to get rid of my own 30 houses. I sold houses. I also burned out. I was exhausted. I'll tell That's you this. It. No, I had a rule. If I worked till six in the morning, I came home. I, I slid in beside my wife quietly as best I could. And then by nine o'clock, I was dressed fully in a suit and tie and back in my office to work again. That was a rule. I never broke that rule. And Unless you a doctor's appointment. No, never happened. And you, but you said you burnt out, right? I mean, th that's the thing that's common in this industry is whether you're successful or not. Um, you can run yourself ragged. If you, well, the, the, the ones look at, I'm sitting, I'm going to my awards dinner next week. I don't like awards dinner. I said to my broker, the other day, I said, Tim, how much is an award cost you? This crappy look, 50 bucks, 75 bucks. You know what? I've had too many awards, but I've never had too many $50. Yeah, exactly. So why don't you skip the award? Give me the 50 bucks. I can use it. You know? So I'm sitting, I, I, I got a hold of somebody in my office who I really love because I'm bringing my girlfriend. She's inside the bees. I'm at Remax. And I'm bringing my girlfriend. She knows a lot of the people in my office. And she's very close with a couple. And um, we're sitting beside somebody who's amazing. She takes off two to three months a year, and she's making between five and seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow! Is this she's a learned, solo agent or someone with a team? She's got one person working with her, one, and that's clerical, not on the street. She's that good. She's got it paced out. And you know what? Those are the people in real estate. Those are my idols, right? Because I don't have that. I don't know how to do that. My girlfriends drive me crazy. We were, except for COVID, we were supposed to. I'll probably go away next year, if please God, if there is a next year, um, for two months. It'll be the first time in my life. I've never been away more than two weeks in my entire life. I had my knee replaced. I was up back in a week. You were planning on going on a trip around the world. That would have taken a lot more than two weeks for sure. I had the money. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. care about money. I had real estate, I had money. I didn't care. I also found out something else. I've gone fishing in Florida off the coast between Miami and Bimini. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to go back in the ocean as long as I live. <laughs> Do you got I, seasick? I went, oh, God, no. You know, they say you turn green. I turned green. <laughs> oh, that happened to me in Lake Ontario, actually, when I was a kid. 
because Lake Ontario can get pretty wild if it's uh, if it's not I a had good a one, one I was I was a boater. I, had four, I was a small boater. I was on Lake Ontario all the time. One day I had fuse problem. I'm hanging upside down on my boat in Toronto Harbor, and the boat's doing this and that, and I'm trying to fix the fuses. And because it was upside down for so, I came up. Oh my God! I was so ugh, motion sickness. Anyways, besides <laughs> the point. Yeah. But, so. Um, between between that time in the in the late seventies and the time that you joined Remax, there were several other uh, entrepreneurial adventures. Oh, I built I built one of the largest appraisal firms in the country. Exactly, thirty three people working for me. I didn't want to be an appraiser. The market collapsed. I'm sitting downtown. It's the eighties, late eighties, um, eighty eighty. Anyways, what happened was I can't remember the years now. Um, I'd always had an appraisal. I always had. Look, I'm curious. I am a fanatic, curious person. I got to know everything. And I take education courses in real estate just because it interests me. And um, I'd always been an appraiser. I'd been an appraisal back in 72. I think I opened an, actually an appraisal firm because there's reasons for it. It tied in with our mortgage business. I needed to do it. But then I started, I was, I ran, I started building up a big appraisal firm for about 10 years. It took me 10 years before I joined the appraisal institute. People say, you can't do that. You're not a, you're not a designated appraiser. I had a business, I had a very lucrative business going. So I ended up with a very large appraisal firm. Um, my last assignment before I sold, walked out and sold it to my partner was 6,000 homes, uh, properties, pardon me, not homes, properties in Houston and in Dallas from a Toronto developer. It was a lawsuit. I had to go down there and I was working in Houston, Dallas, back and forth. The contract was a million five. And I don't think too many appraisers have ever done stuff like that. I mean, I've appraised ski resort mountains. We, we Anybody here that's ever been to um, Vancouver to Grouse Mountain, we appraise Grouse Mountain. I mean, um, how do you do that? How do you appraise cash flow? There's development, but you take all the land that you can develop and do that. And right. then you take all the cash flow of the scheme. And I did another one in Northern Ontario. We did odd stuff and crazy and i did a lot of litigation work i mean i was in court constantly and, and you're still doing that right oh yeah court i'm always uh, i'm you know i mean i wouldn't i would walk away from real estate completely because i make a damn good living being an expert witness my minimum fees are start at 5500 for base um but i don't want to sit here and write reports all day i love selling i don't let me put this to you i would never do a lease if you you couldn't put a gun to my head to do it, but I but I in commercial, yeah. I mean, I made a very good sure. living. I did a, a slew of pharmacists back in the day before the when there were still independent pharmacists. A lot of young guys left shoppers, went on their own. It's very hard to go in your own pharmacy today. But each lease was a ten thousand dollar pop, twelve thousand dollars. It was big money, good money. Hmm. You know, leasing is very lucrative in commercial. Um and an annuity too, if you're good at it. But leaving it alone, um, I hated the appraisal business. I just hated it. But, but it was a puzzle. I got fascinated by it. People came to me with really complex problems. I mean, we did one for $60 million um, contamination case. I mean, I, I, and then Eufy came along and I got, I did a thousand cases with Eufy um, reports. And then from Eufy, I got, Somebody got um, came after a real estate agent. Uh, the real estate firm called me. Can you help defend this agent? I don't think they did anything wrong. I wrote a report against the agent. Next thing you know, I'm writing reports with the agency. So I'm doing reports to this day on agents 
um, negligence and I'm doing reports on stigma. And a lot of them tie in together because the real estate agent lied, knew it would have been a former marijuana grow up and did disclose or covered up. I got houses in Toronto. I, I can't mention too much because these are ongoing cases. Of course. I got some houses that had to be demolished because the agent lied. And, and that's the way it is. So now there's a lot of confusion around certain things. Like, for example, if somebody passes away in a property, there's a yeah, lot of confusion so. surrounding that. So whether they die. So what? <laughs> if they're not paying rent, get rid of them. You know? Yeah, yeah. One way or the other, right? <laughs> you know, there's no law that says you have to disclose a murder or a suicide or any of that stuff. There's no law in the pro only one province, Quebec. The United States is different. 33 states have laws like that. We don't have that. We don't have anything about ghosts. There's, there's never been a case of a haunted house in Canada come to the courts that have ever a judge ruled on haunted houses, but it wasn't, it proved that the house had never been haunted, the property, it wasn't a house, commercial. The judge basically said, unless you can prove that it takes away from the market value, you got no loss. Interesting. So, I mean, I'm, I'm on top of the game in this stuff. I'm on, I read everything. I study it across, not just here in the United States too. So, and that is a segment that, that a lot of people don't necessarily even think about, but, you know, stigmas on properties, as well as, I mean, you've also focused on, you know, um, the older segment, right? You know, in terms of the older demographic. That's my big business. I've done in the last six years, 146 deals where it was either seniors being downsized, one or two upsized, which is rare, that and is. the rest were estates. I love estates more than anything. I love families in turmoil and divorces too. <laughs> um, it's my, it's my favorite thing. I love a family in turmoil. What do you love about it? Because I can take control. I'm a professional. They're not fighting me over my fees. They're out of control. They're emotional. They love each other. We've got siblings. They love each other, but this one thinks they should do this for mom and dad. This one, I walk in, they're up to their net. Mom is a hoarder. The place is, I say, Shh, we're going to look after everything calm down here's what we're going to do we're going to do this systematically we're going to do this with order i'm bringing in a transition person you're going to love her which they do and we're going to go through this and we're going to work with you and we're going to it's not easy but i'll bring ease to the process that's my, that's let, my let's dig into that a little bit so there are a lot of people that look for niches whether that's first-time buyers um new families well, i, I, I found money. over 200 i did i have a course on niches i do for boards finding your niche there's over 200 that i found that i kept going wow I stopped at 200 i i cannot think of 200 off the top of my head that's for sure well i mean think about it. somebody sells waterfront somebody sells right a luxury condo that's a niche somebody sells luxury homes that's a niche somebody sells horse farms somebody sells now let's get horse farms are they raising horses for breeding or are they horse thoroughbreds are they what kind of horses quarter horses so there's different the sub, there's specialties within special there's sub specialties yeah absolutely I, mean, I met a woman once her only thing she was selling daycare centers now the government changed the rules the business got wiped but that's what she did i know someone only sells dental practices unbelievable so, there's so much think about it think about anything you can see who does it look at there's there's real estate agents that they sell restaurants yep absolutely so 200 doesn't take long to add the list 
I guess you're right. I guess you're right. But there's, when we come to, there's, agent, there's a couple of agents in, in Ontario, Canada, the United States. They only sell hotels. Then there's guys that only sell motels. <laughs> yep. Yep. Very true. And it's a different skill set, by the way. I, motels are different than hotels. I used to do appraisals on those. I hated them. My old partner was so much better at it than I was. I, I hated those things. All cash flow analysis. Were you ever, uh, I think you were, in... Um inspections as well because that's the no, one thing no, no, no. i looked at home i looked at home inspection as an auxiliary business to ours yeah. and i looked at very carefully i knew the boys when they started i knew carson dunlop when they were just getting it off the ground we used to have lunch together and they're great guys and um they created an industry but number one the fees are ridiculously low the liability is ridiculously high not interested yeah I could, we could have done appraisal was a residential. We were doing at our peak. I was doing 5,000 a year, not me, my staff. Right. And then one day we got, we got three lawsuits in one week came in. I'd never been sued. We got three, two of them were over mismeasuring a property. Another one, I forget the third, oh, cracks in the foundation. But we had pictures showing there was drywall stacks of it against the foundation wall. And so how would we know? So we got off all three, except one, we had a pay, we were 10% negligent. We were 10%. So I said, I got obsessed. I go, how much money am I making that I'm getting sued? You have to go into my liability insurance. I became a fanatic. I got every girl in my office were women, my assistants, everybody. Every time somebody touched anything, they had a dock at their time. I had to figure out how many, how much a year I was paying for filing cabinets sitting on a floor per rent. Because I was renting the space, right? What, what? How much the photocopier? I got down to the. I was making seven dollars before taxes per appraisal, seven dollars, and the liability was those days. I think it was fifteen hundred deductible or something. I called in thirteen people. I had a nice conversation. Everybody here is my friend, and you're going to leave here as my friend, but you don't work for me anymore. Done. And I kept two people and we switched over to nothing but divorces, um, estates, relocation. The guy that was driving a shabby car within one year had a brand new BMW because we learned the fees went, they went from a lousy 150, 200 bucks in appraisal to a minimum of 750. And the phone never stopped ringing. And that was through contacts from attorneys and well, that was me. I had when I left the appraisal business, I had 1500 lawyers in my database. And arrogantly, not no, no, that's not true. It's not the word is arrogant. Stupidly, when I went to Remax, I thought I got 1500 lawyers. They know me. These are people I can not, I didn't know every single one of them. Some of them I only did some you know, they sent me stuff by email, but a lot of them I could have. I, I guarantee you, I had a thousand I could have had lunch with personally. I knew them. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I'm going to get so much business pouring in when I go to real estate. And then nothing, you know, crickets. And I realized how stupid I was. When I was an appraiser, I was the only appraiser they ever met. When I became a realtor, I was number 38 on the list if it wasn't their wife or their brother in law that right. was already an agent. So, especially in I, Toronto, I was, right? In Toronto. Come on. It's like, you know, if you don't have a real estate agent in your family, you got a small, you're an orphan, you know? Um, <laughs> but 
I, the lawyers, um, they still feed me. I still get a ton of calls from lawyers years later. I, I got two appraisal requests this week. I mean, I still send it back to my old firm. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I want nothing to do. Once in a while, I get called in because I had expertise that people didn't have. Right. And I get called in. Lois, my former partner, will call me and say, you got to do this. And I go, an example, a real estate agent um, sold the property and um, he said there was two car parking. There's zero parking. It's not legal, the two cars. So the question becomes, how much is it worth with no parking? The city may be able to squeeze, you may legally get one car parking. So what's the value with one car parking? What's the value with two car parking? What did you lose? So there's not too many appraisers do that stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. So you've definitely found your way in real estate to find, you know, you've got your particular market of helping out, you know, in litigious situations, (laughs) Um, whether it comes to stigmas, uh, realtor mismanagement of a situation, uh, that type of thing, right? Yeah, it's it's lucrative. I mean, I never have to um, solicit um, because if you go into court cases, my name's there. It's the lawyers look up, the lawyer's got a case. I mean, I just got one from Simcoe and one from Sudbury. They never met me. They see me in the court, in the files. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm there. I'm the guy. I'm so not that, the only, there's only two of us in Ontario doing res, um, um, residential, uh, no, pardon me, realtors who get in trouble. There's only two of us, me and Brian Madigan. And Brian, of course, is one of my close friends. And right. Brian. Yesterday I had a conflict. They were suing somebody I was close with. I said, I can't do it, but I'm going to give you a Brian Madigan. This, I got a big case from Brian because he couldn't do it because of the same thing. But I do stigma on top. And that's, I do a lot of reports where there's both because the agents somehow nobody disclosed the mold or the um, uh, crack, the, the, the foundation, stuff like this. Right. So something I, that they knew about or ought to have known about. They, they should have. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, one of the big problems today is agents keep talking people out of getting a home inspection which is probably one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. And the other thing is, you know, I can't believe how many home inspectors are sued as part of it. I can't believe how stupid some of these home inspectors are. I got one where you can see the foundation walls. He's got pictures of the cross with huge black blotches, and he doesn't say there's more could be mold in those. I mean, really? Unreal. Uh, another one with tunnels. We got one with a cracked wall going out, and the guy didn't... There's bad inspectors, really bad inspectors. Sure, absolutely. You really know who they are. You got to re- refer only one or two. And um, but what I do is, if I've got an offer date at seven o'clock and I'm working with a buyer, and the offer is coming in at six thirty-seven, so I pick up the phone, I book an appointment for eight or nine in the morning, and get my inspector in the day of. Right. And if they say, and if the seller says, if I get anything, well, my seller doesn't want to let in an inspector. I go, really? What are you hiding? Exactly. And I'll tell my buyer, we're going to another house. Sorry. They're hiding something. I said, that's it. We're out. We even put an offer in. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to ask you um, how you handle that in a hot, hot market when people want firm offers. What do you do? Because like pre, you said. You pre. You do, you pre, do it before. Exactly. Now, let me flip that for a second and say, if you're selling, you're the listing agent. Yeah. Do you ever do an inspection on that side and offer that to part of my package with with floor plans and everything. My package includes the professional photography, the um, internet, 
uh, marketing, the um, floor plans for sure. I won't do anything without floor plans, right. including I did, I sold the smallest house of my career down in Corktown. I sold a house that was 375 square feet. I had a professional photographer in there and I, and I am a professional photographer as, as my amateur I've sold thousands of dollars of my work to institutions. And these guys are so much better than I am. They have better equipment. So I don't, I use BizImage. I'll give them a break. They're great. I love them. <laughs> Anyways, I'll give them a plug. And um, they do the floor plans for me. And um, I do that in a 375 foot house. I did it for a reason because I go to people and say, if I did it for this house, look what I'll do for your house. Right. That's exactly. It's a marketing point. But um, I but also you've got a total of like five pictures for that house, right? One outside from the front, <laughs> one outside from the back, and like one of every corner, maybe. Yeah, but the funny thing is, it was at a, at a full basement. Three sorry, at a full basement. <laughs> um, anyways, one little bedroom, one dinky little bedroom, one little dinky kitchen, and one little dinky room. It was 375 feet. It was unbelievable. Anyways, and a semi um, bungalow. So what happens is I also bring in a pre-inspection um, home, uh, home inspection. And that's, I pay for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, there's two or three reasons why I believe in it fully. The first reason is the minute that we get the inspection, we know what we have to fix before it goes out there. So let's say it's small stuff. It's a, it's a GCI or something. Like we got, we got a ground receptacles. Yeah. Well, that's not expensive. It's not that bad. A couple hundred bucks is done. So now we just took it off the list of a good inspector coming for the buyer. They don't have to find that. We don't, it's not there anymore. Right. So we can revise. Now I'm not going to put a new roof on a house. If it needs a roof, we'll just sell it. Look at, we know it needs a roof in the next two years. Before, you know, I've had, I had one guy, he put a brand new furnace in before we put the house. The first was shot. It was gone. We had a, we had a, he decided let's put the furnace in. So that, because if a buyer sees something that's really only cost 5,000, the buyer automatically will want 10 or 15,000 off. It's psychological. It's the way it is. Yeah. And they're always like that. So that's the first reason I do it is to get rid of all the crap, all the small, I, I tell my clients, it could, it could cost you a couple of thousand dollars up to, after that, we won't do the big stuff. We'll do all the small stuff. And sometimes it's silly. It's sometimes I, I'm extremely handy. Okay. I, I can build a house. Um, I always call myself, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to call it a Jew with tools, um, <laughs> which is a very, a very rare thing, by the way. Um, and the funny thing is I pass it on to my son. He's amazing, but I can build a house with my son, I, except I'm afraid to touch the electrical panel. I've done it, but I'm petrified. I wouldn't. Um, so what happens is I go over and I just, bring in some stuff and I'll fix up. I, I fix a lot of stuff myself. If it's minor, you know, little doorknobs. I, I'm good at changing light, um, light switches and stuff like that. I'll do it. Okay, let me ask you a question about that then. So you're good at it. You can do it, but is that the best use of your time? It enhances you with the client. Your relationship. Everything's about building relationships. I can never see my clients enough during the process of dealing with them. There's never enough. The more I spend with them, because every client is a potential sphere of influence for the future. Right. If I made one major career mistake, huge career mistake, the rule is I've, I've written this many times for young people starting in real estate. What should I do? It's the first rule, database every single person you meet and keep in touch till one of you die. It's that simple. And I didn't do that. I mean, the, the people I came in contact with, the, 
it, 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 it's sad. Well, first of all, never computers, so that was hard. Right. You know, the seventies. I got seventy-seven. I had computers. So, but we didn't have even in the seventy-seven. We didn't have a database program. They didn't come out till I think VisiCalc came out around nineteen seventy-nine or eighty, something like that. We didn't. And Lotus One Two Three came in after. So and they we, were the size of like an elephant, basically. So I still have the first IBM PC ever sold in Toronto. Really? I have it. Yep, I have it in storage. I was there. I bought it. By, I was a geek. I was buying. I was reading the magazines. I was going nuts. I wanted this because I had a car phone in 71. I had a, I had a phone in my car in 1971. My pager number, when pagers came out, I was number 35 in all so of Toronto. Second. Thinking about your car phone, was it a dial phone or was it push button? Three buttons. Three buttons? Yeah. You had three channels. The phone was like a princess. It sat in your thing. It cost about $3,000 to install through Bell Canada only. You had to spend hours there when they were doing it. This big thing went, box went into your trunk. And you had an antenna. You had to put an antenna. I, had, I was driving. I was in my, I was 20, 19, 22, 23. I had a brand new, I always had new Cadillacs in those days. And um, I had an antenna. i never forget that. And it was great when they got to the short little antennas. That was like, oh, my God, I don't have that big antenna. Magic. Yeah. And that was magic because car washes, you had to go take it off before you went through a car wash. Anyways, um, the, the phones you pick up, you had a channel and you, you listen for a minute and you can hear somebody talking, you go next channel, press a button. Oh, nobody there. Operator comes up. Operator, um, would you please get me 781-4444? There was no area codes. Just, that was right. it. And the operator patched the call through. So basically it was almost a two-way radio with a landline at the Bell Canada office. And an operator and sitting there with a headset. Operators in. only did mobiles. And then it was $1 a minute. And in 1971, was a lot of money. dollar was a big deal. And therefore, if you had a dropped call, I would phone the, it was so expensive. I would phone operator. I was calling 416-781-4444 and she, it dropped. They go, okay, we'll credit you the call. You did that because it was that expensive. And we didn't talk a lot. So I had a pager that all it did was beep because there were no voices yet. But I was number 35, 35th pager in Toronto. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I like technology. I always like technology. Now I know that you you specifically make an effort to to stay on top of things, and you've you've hired someone to actually show you a lot of you know the new technology. I'm having trouble with DocuSign these days. I I, I find really not, yeah. I don't like it. I just don't like it because I think it detracts from selling real estate. I think there's a purpose for it. I did it the other day. I have a I have an institutional client. They don't have to see me all the time. I can send stuff to them. Them I can. But I had a glitch in it the other day in DocuSign. Uh, I had three people assigned. I was one of three. One, two, three. One of them did. The last one didn't go through. And I had so much. I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I scanned it, sent it through as a, as a PDF. They, they, they printed it. They scanned it back to me. Still made a deal. Still made the same deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, you find a way to get it done, right? So well, yeah. let me ask you, after, after that, you know, rich history in the business you've got I've been, broke, insight. I've been broke three times more busted busted so bad that i had to go get pop bottles when we can still return bottles to the store to yeah. get my kids milk i've been busted at one point i think one of the happiest days of my life 
was the day I went broke. And what happened is I owed so much money that when I eventually paid off all that money, I owed nobody. I was broke. I didn't have any assets. I had no debts. And I thought I was the happiest guy in the world because I didn't know anybody. Being broke was actually a happy experience because I wasn't in debt. Yeah, there's a big difference there for sure. So but, you, you've experienced the highs, the lows, and all different facets of the industry. Through all of that, if, if we can put that knowledge in a little bottle here and package it for someone that's thinking about getting in the business or new in the business and having some frustrating times. Let's say you had a nephew that was like, okay, I want to get into the business. What do you advise them knowing what you know now and being able to see, because you have great relationships in the business as well from people that do very, very well. What would you say, this is the best way to start. This is the best way to find success. Well, I mean, I, when I'll go back to my appraisal years, not my real estate years. I was the, I didn't do a lot of residential. After a few years, I started bringing in residential people. I did commercial stuff, but I did high end. I did the bridal paths. I did the multi-million dollar estates. And I dealt with some of the wealthiest people in the country. And I did work for, you name one of the large, Elise Callis, Chestnut Park, um, Johnson Daniel. Johnson Daniel actually started me um, on, in the road of doing luxury homes. Okay. And I, I spent a lot of time with a lot of the top, top agents around. So I, I have an insight. Having served them, I observe them. I have never met a decent agent who wasn't organized. And what I mean by that, they could be a totally sloppy, but their assistant better be. Right. One of them has to keep them organized. And therefore you, and here's something else, and they keep strict hours. They work. Like I said, I used to be in the office never later than nine o'clock sharp. This is where you have discipline. You have to put in so many hours. You make a deal. You don't run off to the golf course or go with your buddies drinking beer or, or go on a shopping spree to buy, you know, go down and, and go on a shopping spree at Nordstrom. So you just don't do that. You, you Every day, you know, I'm sitting back. I'm a kid. I'm 21. I'm, I'm about a month or two in the real estate. And it was a Saturday morning and people had phoned me on Friday and said, we're going out of town. We really like that house. Can we get it done before we go away on Saturday, we're leaving around noon. I said, I could be in the office really early at about eight o'clock, is that okay? They come in at eight o'clock, sign the papers, full price. There was no brainer. All I could do is go present the offer, present the offer, give them the offer, you right. made your deal. I'm sitting back, it's the first of the morning, it's like 8.30, 9 o'clock, they're gone. And I'm sitting in this chair and I'm, I don't even have a cigar in my mouth. I'm sitting back and my, my manager walks in on a Saturday early and sees me. He says, what are you gloating about? I said, I just made a great deal. It's the first thing in the morning. And he looks at me and says, so now you get off your ass and go out there. You got the rest of the day to work. <laughs> now he says, you can't sit back and wait for the one deal. To, right. You got to keep going. You got to, you know, here's the thing. When you're Joe Girard, who was rated as the world's greatest salesman by uh, the Guinness World Records for years, Joe was in the automotive. I went to see him with Andy Sermon, who owns the Home Life um, franchises. He's the founder and everything. Andy and I went years back to see Joe Girard. We were so happy. And uh, sat with me, him, and Sadie Moranis, the three of us. We're sitting there. Joe Girard said, I was so desperate to sell a car. All I saw for the first customer was a bag of groceries. And what happens is when you're desperate, I don't care how cool, I don't care how calm, I don't care how trained you are, they smell it. 
the clients smell desperation. You've got to push while you're making deals, not when you need a deal. And right. that's what happens. I know guys, they're fabulous agents when they work. They make money, they do trips, they buy, they go golfing, and then all of a sudden they look up, uh-oh, Visa, 10 grand? Oh, my God. And then they get back and they start hustling all over again. And that's how they've lived their entire real estate careers. Right. The top producers never rest. They do their job like they're going to a job, nine to five, longer hours. But and the other thing is you got to have family. I have a, I had a very strict rule. I worked for a, I was 17, 18. I worked for a guy named Leon Deskin who became the um, president of the um, Commercial Travelers Association years later. And Leon said to me one day at lunch, I was 17, 18, we're on Spadina Avenue. We're sitting at a counter. And Leon said to me, remember, as a salesman, always have the biggest and best lunch you can have because you're not guaranteed you're going to have dinner. And that's so true. That's so true because we don't know how long we're going to work. That's so right. You make and your in this business, it's very interesting because it's that, you know, hamster wheel, right? Once you get yeah. off, it stops spinning. So it doesn't matter how good of a month, how good of a year you've had. You could have sold millions of dollars, but the next month you're at zero. You're at zero. I, my girlfriend and I just sat back. We're both sold out right now. No listings. I got some stuff coming up right now. I'm waiting for the tenant problem and all, but I got some stuff. She's got some stuff. She's like hyper. Like, and I'm going, you know, you're, you're, you, your success, you, you, your success stops your business. You, you, you're out of business by success. That's right. You sold everything out. You got nothing left to sell. So you got to <laughs> go back all the time. And that's not easy. I mean, the constant hunting and constant, and this is a different world right now. This is a tough world. Our real estate's changed. First of all, the floodgates have opened. We've got anybody and everybody's in this business. They're, 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 making, they're in it for the money. There aren't, I'm sorry, there's not as many new career agents out there. They're not in it for the group. They don't, they're, they're there to grab the money they can. It's, it's almost a, like a, a pop star thing, like American Idol people wanted to start singing. And so they all got into that. And ever since all these these fancy real estate shows came on, Million Dollar Agent, this and that, everybody thought, ooh, this looks easy. I can make millions and millions and millions of dollars. Let me get my license. Yeah. In the meantime, those shows are staged. Well, by the way, I turned down three shows. Uh, HGTV actually wanted me to do, um, they guaranteed me 13 episodes. And I said, nope. <laughs> nope. I said to them, because you don't get paid until you start getting sponsors and getting the shows out. They wanted me to do this show where I would go in and solve people's real estate problems anywhere in the United States or Canada. And I, I said to them, and it was going to be like a real estate detective thing, like how do I get them out of messes, right. which is fine. And then they said to me this and that, and this is the third show. And I took my girlfriend down to the studio with me when we were talking. So I said to the guy, I said, so let me ask you a question. I don't get money coming in until we're about the third, unless the show gets picked up. Until then, I'm doing this for a sort of, you know, so the glory of television. So I said, let me ask you a question. Where do you get your groceries? He says, well, Loblaws. I said, so when you go to Loblaws and you're on the conveyor belt and your last thing is in the bag, you tell them, oh, let me give you my pride. <laughs> Can I give you my pride? I said, because where I go to get groceries, they ask for cash. And he said to me, well, Barry, you don't understand. I go, no, you don't understand. I don't need pride. I need money. And 
you know, you, you, you can't, you know, it may be all glory and everything. I've had friends right. that have TV shows when it's over, they don't, they didn't make a lot of money. They didn't. And the thing is the public's fickle. I've been on television. I've been on television so many times radio. I used to do radio all the time, CFRB and all this stuff. And, and, and how many times I've been in print across North America and you know what? The phone doesn't ring anymore for you. I, I would be off. And oh, my, when my aunts were alive, they used to phone me and go, oh, I loved it. You know, great. I had, <laughs> I had an audience, two people. Uh, right. My mother would go, oh, you didn't say anything to embarrass us. Thank God. Um, that was my mom. <laughs> my mom always used to do that. Oh, you didn't embarrass us. That was her whole thing. But, yeah, but it, it perpetuates this idea of real estate being very, very glamorous. And, and it's then not. You've got, it's no, not. It's grunt work. I mean, I it's don't know. Grunt. Are you? Are you on uh, Instagram or TikTok or any of those things? I don't have a younger group. TikTok, for sure, I'm not for another reason. Nothing to do with the. It's owned by the communist Chinese, and they are using it as a tool to gather all your information. I'm sorry. There's no way I'm going on TikTok. It's, it's, no way. It's bad it's, enough. Facebook. I'll tell you a fast story. Right. Very fast story. We're in um, um, Nyack, New York. I want to see the most famous haunted house. I don't know here. where that is. Where is that? It's up the up from Manhattan, uh, up the Hudson River. Okay. So I'm in Nyack. We're a beautiful town to spend a day on. And we're there. And I want to see the most haunted house in the United States, which was a part of my lectures I do on selling the haunted house, one of my courses. Anyways, we're in Nyack. And my um, dash cam, you know, the little plastic stem that comes off that holds it? The thing broke. It just fell in the heat. It was a very hot day. And it, it actually snapped. It just came off. And I start, son of a bitch. I said, what kind of crap is this? It breaks like this. I Look at this. A, a dash cam stem. I'm in the car. Just me, her. And obviously my phone's there. The next day on Facebook, I started getting ads for the stems for um, that. Tell me they weren't listening. Yeah. The next day. Absolutely. I couldn't, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm the guy that didn't want Siri in my house. Not Siri. Um, yeah, I didn't want him in my house. I didn't want Alexa, whatever it is. Right. I want it because they listen. And here they did. Anyway, sorry, I digress. <laughs> I, I hear you. Me. But the reason why I brought that up is because there, there's this image perpetuated by TV and then copied, you know, and there are these people that are doing dances like, they point to something, they're karaokeing a, a song, and, and they think that's presents a professional sort of. And these are rockets. They'll go up, they'll come down. Yeah. I looked um, recently at, um, I found, I'm clearing out a store, I cleared a storeroom out that I had for 15 years. I saw that. And I've got so much stuff. Anyways, I found old ads in that. And I found people who were superstars back in the day. Not one of them is known today or around real estate. They come and they burn. As a real estate broker, I love the number one person to have in your office is the plotter. The plotter is the person who maybe makes 80 to 100,000 a year and does it for 15, 20 years. They also buy a little condo here and there, a little investment. And you know what? In the end, they come out better than most. Because you see, I'm a shooter. I, I, I live the gambler's life. I come from a father who was a major gambler a good gambler not didn't piss it away um like my grandfather my grandfather was a terrible gambler so there's there's three generations of gambling in my family my son's pretty heavy poker player so we were shooters and there was my dad always taught me 
It doesn't matter what you want. Just go get it and we'll pay it later. So if I want a brand new Cadillac or a brand new um, car of any kind, I just went out and bought it. And I didn't care because tomorrow I'd make enough money to pay it off. That's all there was to it. That's how I live. That's a shooter's life. And most of the big shooters, the top agents I've ever known, very few ever got out with money. Very few. You'd be shocked that some of these people were superstars in their day for years, living with their kids in a, at home or something. They, they had no money. Now, there's a few. There's exceptions. Don't get me wrong. Some were shrewd with money. Most weren't. Most, most of us pissed it away. I did an interview for um, some years ago. I was doing a magazine article. I went to different managers. And in one office, who's was an elite office. Like, these are the women that are the glam girls. They told me basically not one of them owns their own condo or house. They're all gowns. They're all with manicures and perfect hair and the finest jewelry. And they're at every charity event where the tables start, you know, the seat costs you a minimum $1,000 to walk in. Yeah. That's what, that's their life. The glam girls. And a lot, I got friends of mine just did a big deal, huge deals. They're in Vegas right now. They're out there enjoying that. It's not uncommon, but the shooters, they don't last. And I was that guy. I was, I was sort of that guy. In a way. So when you're, you're then putting I have no that... respect for money, I have no respect for money. That's <laughs> not money. I, my son and I talked two days ago. Yeah. Uh, yesterday. I said to my, yesterday, I said to my son, you know, I'm not leaving you anything if I can, you know, which he doesn't need my money. And he said to me, um, I want, he says, that's not nice. I said, my, I don't want to ever be a burden. But I want it, the day I die is when I want to spend my last dollar. Zero. I want zero. I want to spend it. Money's the tool. That's all it is to me. The accumulation of money means nothing. What are you going to do with it? You, you know, what are you going to do? Put it in, uh, in, in loonies and swim naked in it? What are you going to do with it? That's an idea. Scrooge, <laughs> Scrooge McDuck. You remember Scrooge McDuck? Yeah, yeah. no, I do. Donald Duck used to do that. Absolutely. I, don't, I, I believe that, you know, the best thing in life is experiences. Absolutely. I agree. I'm doing so, a road trip in a motorhome, and as soon as I can, as soon as the, I can't break in places in the United States, I've only got seven states left, and I, I've seen it all. So I'm going to the last few states. Let me ask you: You were sitting at that table earlier. You were talking about that person who was taking a couple of months off. She works. She does, you know, really good business. She takes a couple of months off. She sounds like she has pretty good balance. Yeah. What? There are a few of those around. Uh, I know a few people like that as well. Not many. What is it that that they're doing that allows them to live that kind of lifestyle? They like, have, how are they in their business? They've ingrained themselves with such loyalty to their client base. It's unbelievable. People will wait for them before they put their house up. I'm amazed by that. Um, I've seen lots of people say to me, oh, I'm in Mexico and I get back. So-and-so is going to list with me. And so and they come back and they got two, three listings waiting for them. Um, it's That's a special person and there are people like that i could show you certain amount of agents i know that take off every winter and and come back and they got business going right away i can think of at least three four off the top of my head fast if not more and that's based off of building very strong personal relationships right i wrote a um, i used to write articles on farming i believe that the bet the, the the agent who does the best of all are the farmers I have a friend of mine. She's a farmer. I, I, I won't mention any names here, um, but if I told you, you'd know who it is. It's probably doing two million dollars a year in sales herself. Very nice. Uh, by not you know that and that and if not more, 
and they control the neighborhood. It's that simple. But that's not an overnight thing. That you can't make money in farming unless you spend at least one year religiously before you start to see it pay off. Now, farming is probably the smartest way to do real estate. Farming is a dedicated thing. It's not just sending out flyers and everything. You got to go out there and knock doors and you got to do the contests and you've got to give out pumpkins at Halloween and you've got to do all that stuff and you got to be a community. You got to be active in that community. And if you're not, it's not going to work. Right. Um, I, I did a different way. I went after lawyers and accountants and trustees. That was my farm area. My area it wasn't farm area. It was a product. I went after a certain person. Right. So that was, that was always something that I've never stopped going after lawyers. I mean, as soon as, now that we're getting restrictions lifted, I will take at least one lawyer out for lunch every week this next year. Those that are ready to go for lunch, some still are right. saying, Harry, let's hold off. <laughs> but, but it's uh, about, ultimately, this is a contact sport. And people that think they can build their business um, purely digitally or whatever the case may be, at some point, you're going to have to get face to face with people. So they're, gonna, it, they're never going to be around there. They'll come, they'll, they'll, they'll come, they'll have some, they may have some luck because this market's nuts. It's not normal. And um, they won't last. They just won't last. You've got the, that's why I say them. I know my business really got hurt over COVID terribly. Why? I'm a one-on-one guy. Yep. I, I see my people always. I, I, I'm going crazy because I can't, I don't have enough people on my list right now for lunches. And set up the older demographic as well. I've found in the the clients that I had, um, they were the most nervous, I believe, in letting people in their house and and wondering what's going to go on. So they really took a big step back. And I think that we got this market. Well, exactly. When I think once restrictions start to to ease up, they're going to start, you know, bringing their houses up. And I'm already seeing inventory increase and buyers pull back on you know, fatigue basically of this nonsense of listing a house for five ninety nine and it's selling for one point five million dollars. I mean, people are sick of that, and and so that eventually catches up and, and the market comes back. I got a prediction from somebody. My son gave me a prediction. He's not in real estate; he's in advertising. But my son's family, um, my son, the family married into. They've been in Muskoka 25, 30 years, and my son is a hands on person at the cottage he's the one he can fix anything that's you work hard owning a cottage yeah he said all these people came up from the city they have no idea about septic tanks and pumps and um having the rake leaves and keeping they don't understand you've got to maintain a cottage it's a lot of work and he says i guarantee you you're going to see a lot of them bailing because they don't realize what they got themselves into that's right absolutely absolutely it's like well, me with a boat. I, <laughs> I love I love being a boat owner, but I wish I was somebody else's boat. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You go there, you rent it, you're, you're there for the day, and, and then you can walk away and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. All right, so final thoughts, Barry, for people that are listening that uh, are in that career, they're in that point, and, and they want to see success. What, what can you give in terms of advice or, or direction to these people? Like I said, you got a database. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. you got to come up with a good newsletter and send it to them without stopping and if you if you and 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 it's got to be and you got to make contact with them personally at least two or three times a year minimum but there's more than just that you cannot be coached you have to find a coach or a mentor but you can't be coached you have to first be coachable 
You have to open yourself up to want to learn. This is a complex business. I am 54 years in real estate. I know 54% of what I should know. There is no answer to the bottom. It's like little threads. There's, there's so much to learn. you got to become an education junkie. I did it, said it in a video I just did, and I'll say it again to finalize. When I was on a stage with another speaker who was going ahead of me, he turned to me and says, the wrong people are in this room. And I said to him, are you crazy? Look who's out here. And I started pointing. This is one of the top agents in the country. This agent controls this. This agent's this. He goes, that's the problem. I go, what are you talking about? Says, the ones who need it are never here. Here's something else you will find. My girlfriend came into real estate as a grandmother at a later stage in life. She's nine years. She is um, probably no top 1% of earners in Toronto today. In nine years, one of the things she learned besides taking a ton of education and learning, and she goes to everything she can, she spent a lot of time friending top agents. It's so you can learn so much over a table at dinner. That's right. Drinks. And these, and one thing I know, I'm, I'll mention, I'll throw it out. My friend Daryl King, you talk, pick up the phone. Daryl, love you. He'll give you the shirt off his back. You see, you want to talk to him? He'll talk to you, you know, as long as you're not an idiot. But, you know, you can talk. I'm out of the question then. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, yeah, I can sit there. I can pull him and say, what would you do if you were in this situation? And we do bounce off each other. You can't, it's not, you can't do this alone. You can't be arrogant. The, the lack of knowledge that most agents have is, 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 is stifling. It's unbelievable. You've got to learn this business. You've got to be coachable. That I think, like you said, it's relationships, not just with your clients, but with other realtors. And oh. I, made a, I made a concerted effort when I started because I knew nothing about nothing. I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I made it a point to go out to every event that I could, network with as many people as possible, learn what I can, and then even travel outside of the country, outside of the province, and just go to meet people and network because you never know how. Yeah, I, I'm a little past that. I've done too many of those. I've traveled all over North America to conference. I still go to the NER conference. I love it. Mm -hmm. it. But leaving that last thing alone, this year, uh, in the last two years, 33, 34% of my business, because I analyze, comes from referrals from other agents from outside. That's where I get my business, including I've got agents right in the city that are luxury agents going, Barry, I've got this guy. He's a they're an ethnic family. The brother's there. He's a hoarder. The house is like this. And I go, I'd love to have that listing. I love hoarders. And that's the key to niching down because you can't know everything about everything, but you have a much better chance of knowing a lot about this little narrow market. And if you can, you know, really get your expertise down on that, you are the expert there and people will notice that. And, and, and I refer people to other people who are experts. Exactly. I don't do it exactly. all. That's another thing. They take listings they should never take. Oh, drives me crazy. They, they take listings. Or, I'll take, or... I'm sitting in class, I'm, I'm not sitting, I'm standing in class teaching at Toronto State Board, and I see somebody I know, and I, one of the students, I go, how are you, what's doing? He says, oh, and I leave here today, I'm going to Guelph to do a, to do a list, that's my hometown, and I said to him, oh, you're going to Guelph, why would you go to Guelph? You live, like, that's, it's an hour out without traffic, right. and with traffic, you know, it's three hours, I said, what are you doing? Oh, it's my friend, and blah, 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 and I go, you get 25% referral, what are you doing? 
I love referrals. I, 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 I can't believe I've, I've given out so many referrals this year. It's been, I, a couple of them are really lucrative. I mean, a couple of multi-million dollar deals out of Toronto. I went, somebody said, but you but they could come have done back. it. You could have done it. I went, no, I couldn't. I don't know the neighborhoods. But the, okay, you're coming from a place where you're coming from a point of contribution to your client, not from dollar signs in your eyes thinking, oh, this is how much money I can make from this situation. Know that- uh, Look at fiduciary. What's fiduciary? Fiduciary is very simple. It means you put the client's interest above yours. And as long as you serve the client, then they get served and your byproduct is you get paid. That's it. You create relationships, you strengthen relationships with other realtors in other areas. It always comes back. So in my mind, it always balances out. I I agree with you 100%. And, And being friends with realtors from outside the area, you think I'm not upset that I'm teaching now by Zoom across Ontario? I teach for boards. I do quite a bit. I don't do as much as I used to because I don't want to do it all the time. I like teaching. It's fun. And I train. I got about 10 courses that I, I seminars I do for certain boards. And um, I miss the fact of not being in the classroom. Why? That's where I picked up a lot of my referrals base. Exactly. Agents come to me. I have made some great connections from people who took classes with me really and not just um from that i've actually became very good friends with certain people too my mm-hmm. girlfriend and i we've had many times we'll sit dinner with people i met them as students they were students of mine there you go so you don't have to be the teacher you can be the student which goes back to my point of get out there meet people learn things and good things will happen all right barry i've taken up a lot of your time thank you so, so much do i get like the whole cooper do i get all the sports equipment coming to me the snowmobile suit all the stuff from cooper i wish i wish i, I get all get, that stuff maybe i could buy you a hockey stick or something but <laughs> I, i'm not related to that at all no no but thank you so much and if people want to get a hold of you and they want to send you referrals you know that fit your particular niche in your particular area tell people how they can get a hold of you Oh, my name's at the bottom right here, Barry Lebo. Just go to barrylebo.com. I mean, there's my website's right there. It's e- I'm easy to get a hold of. Um, I, um, I'm getting a lot of robocalls lately, like everybody else, you know, a little too many of those. But um, I'm easy to get a hold of. I, I take calls. I have a rule. I tell people like this. I, I say to my clients, um, here's the deal. Once in a while, I do shower. I have been known to eat. And sometimes I sleep, not well, I do a little bit of that. And you can get a hold of me. So here's the deal. You call, you get me. It's that simple. But I do take calls. I do, t- I do educate my clients. Um, for, during the week, 9 to uh, uh, 10 o'clock at night, you can call me from any time from 9 till 10. Then you're on a fr- a Friday night, don't call me after um, 6. Saturday, Sunday, just be reasonable. That's all I ask. And uh, the last thing, by the way, that's something. This Leon, my the guy who was my mentor as a kid when I was on the road, he said to me, "Whatever you do in real estate, or not real estate, but in sales, right, always have one night that belongs to the family. Don't break that for the sanctity of no deal is important enough, no sale is important. Always be there one night a week for the family. I never broke that." With the, with, with the rarest of rarest exceptions and, yeah um, i think that that that's very important because i'm sorry divorce in real estate is a is a reality 
Well, it's that idea of working to live rather than living to work. And you have to understand that there has to be some sort of balance. Otherwise, what is the point? What is the point, right? So with that, we'll leave it. Thank you, Barry. I really appreciate you taking the Thanks, time. We went Thanks way for over. asking me, buddy. It's a, we sort of went over, but. I don't mind. I enjoyed it. We could do it again. Listen, next time we'll do it over some steaks. I'm going to Morton's Saturday night. Oh, man. You know, I've never been to Morton's. Oh, that? people that people I've, I've got three gift certificates. People I did favors for sent me. I'm going to Morton's on their gift certificates. Like I'm at Morton's a lot, but they <laughs> took away the hash browns. I love the hash browns. They, they stopped doing it. But the best steak I've ever had, if you're ever in New York City, you've got to go to, um, uh, I just blanked. <laughs> I was going to tell you the best <laughs> restaurant I've ever been to. But um, there's, there's one restaurant. Oh, my God. The best steak I think I've ever had is in Philadelphia at the Palm. The Palm's a well-known steak chain. Um, I've never had a steak in my life as good as I had in the Palm in Philadelphia. I think I stopped the manager. I called the manager over. She's so everything already said. This was the best steakhouse experience of my life. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll have to check it out for sure. Be Thank sure. you, Barry. Have a great day. Thanks, you good. Go good hunting. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.